I'm Reverend Bob Moore, and I welcome you to this next edition of Peace Matters, our podcast. Today, we are very honored to have Dr. Frank von Hippel as our guest. Welcome, Dr. von Hippel. Thank you. Uh, Dr. von Hippel is a senior research physicist and professor of public and international affairs emeritus at Princeton University. Previously, he was assistant director of the White House Science Advisor's Office and won the MacArthur Prize, nicknamed the Genius Award. He has generously shared his expertise with the Coalition for Peace Action for numerous public talks, press conferences, candidate briefings, and lobbying appointments over the past 38 years. Professor Van Hippel, again, we're so honored to have you again to help us explore some more issues. And I know one of them that you've been doing a lot of work on for a number of years is the issue of plutonium and the dangers that it presents. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, plutonium is is a nuclear weapons material. It was first produced um, during World War II uh, and used in the Nagasaki bomb. Right. Uh, the other, the Hiroshima bomb was was highly enriched uranium, the other nuclear weapons material. But at the same time, uh, people, uh, the you know the uh, the people in the Manhattan Project were were uh, dreaming about nuclear energy, mm-hmm. and that that somehow they could redeem right. nuclear fission uh, as and it could become a benefit for for mankind. Mm-hmm. And their their concern was that the U-235, the, the chain-reacting isotope of uranium that was separated out for the, to make the Hiroshima bomb, right. that it was going to be too scarce mm-hmm. for uh, large-scale nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And so their idea was that the, well, the U-238, U-235 is, is only seven-tenths of a percent of uranium. And their idea was that, that the other... Ninety-nine point three percent of of natural uranium, uranium two thirty-eight, which doesn't chain react, could be turned into chain reacting plutonium. Uh-huh. And so then you get a hundred times more energy out of a kilogram of of uranium. And in fact, when you when you do the math, uh, th- on average, the Earth's crust uh, contains three grams of uranium for every ton of rock. And if you efficient that uranium entirely, the U-238 as well as U-235, the energy you would release would be equivalent to nine tons of coal. Wow. So, so any piece of the Earth's crust would become a richer energy source than coal. Right. So, that, so, so that, that was the idea was, you know, can we, can we in fact um, exploit uh, uranium fully, the energy in uranium fully, Mm-hmm. By turning it into plutonium, mm-hmm. and uh, th- and uh, the one of the uh, designers of the first reactor, uh, Le- uh, Leo Zillard, mm-hmm. uh, actually invented the plutonium breeder reactor in 1945. Right, and that became the sh- the the um, uh, the the goal of the mm-hmm. nuclear energy community to, to actually develop and commercialize the I see. react. Mm-hmm. But they forgot that plutonium is a nuclear weapons material. Mm-hmm. And when I came in, uh, to Princeton in mm-hmm. 1974, uh, we, just, we had just been reminded 
that, that plutonium, whether civilian or military, is a nuclear weapons material because uh, the, uh, during the 1960s, the Atomic Energy Commission uh, had been promoting uh, plutonium as the fuel of the future. The, right. the, the, uh, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, Glenn Seaborg, even talked about having a plutonium economy, right. a, an economy based on plutonium. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the countries that we had been encouraging to uh, to, to work on uh, developing this future for itself was India. Mm-hmm. And in 1974, India used some of the first plutonium that it made and separated with our help for a nuclear explosion. Right. And Which means a nuclear bomb, essentially. It wasn't. Uh, right. Yes. Right. Well, they called it a peaceful nuclear right. explosion. Peaceful. But, but we knew that it could be used for other purposes as well. Right. right. And so this really took the issue back out of the hands of the Atomic Energy Commission. Mm-hmm. The White House got involved, the State Department got involved, and and I actually became involved uh, during the Carter administration right. in, in a review. Does this program make sense? Right. And and uh, we concluded, we concluded, and President Carter concluded that in fact uh, it was not economic. Right. The, these reactors that. Uh, the breeder reactors were going to be cooled not by water like our, mm-hmm. our regular reactors, but by liquid sodium. Uh-huh. And liquid sodium burns on contact with water or air. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so there were you know a number of countries built prototypes and they all had troubles right. uh, because right. of, because of the sodium problem. Right. Uh, so so it wasn't economic, and it turned out that uranium wasn't that scarce after all. Mm-hmm. And so on the scale that we have nuclear power now, uh, the the way we are going, exploiting primarily uranium-235, is fine. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the uranium is is, is a, uh, only a few percent of the cost of nuclear power. That's right. not the issue. The issue is that the nuclear power plants are, are too co- costly. That's, right. that's what's killing nuclear power. And that they also then inherently have this capability of, of the materials used in them turning those into nuclear weapons. And so they're a big danger for the spread of nuclear weapons. Well, the, the, if we operate nuclear reactors the way we do in the United States, where we, the, the plutonium stays in the spent fuel mixed with fission products, is quite inaccessible. And the idea, our current idea since President Carter, uh, is is really to bury the spent fuel with the plutonium in it. And uh, if we if we want nuclear energy, that's that's the best we can do as far as uh, right. as far as keeping as far away from uh, from exposing plutonium to so weapons. So the use. proliferation danger is very much comes into play when you separate the plutonium out. That's right. And in fact, uh, so we don't do it, right. but a number of countries still do. Right. And, and so that's, I'm, I'm working with a Japanese and a South Korean colleague on writing a book mm-hmm. about this issue. The title of the book uh, is, at the moment, the working title is uh, Plutonium for Nuclear Energy from Dream to Nightmare. Mm. And uh, so, so we, we are really t- trying to focus on, in this book, on Japan in particular, Mm-hmm. Uh, which which uh, is the one non-nuclear weapon state that separates plutonium at this point right. for for civilian purposes. Right. Uh, and to to persuade it that uh, to to quit, 
Right. Now, is, is Japan just, when they separated, are they actually using it to generate electricity, or is it mostly just being stored? So far, it's mostly been stored. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they've had a program uh, when breeder reactors didn't come. You know, the, the original idea of separating this plutonium was to provide startup plutonium for these breeder reactors to make more plutonium. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when those uh, breeder reactors didn't come, then, then uh, France pioneered the idea of, well, let's recycle the plutonium back into the existing reactors. Right. It, it's a way to get rid of the plutonium, but it's, it doesn't make any economic sense right? Uh, because it, that fuel costs 10 times as much as the mm -hmm. fuel as, mm -hmm. as a natural, as the enri right. low-enriched uranium you would have otherwise used. But, but uh, these, these programs develop bureaucratic uh, constituency, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and there's thousands of people working on it, and it's very difficult to shut down these programs. Right. And, the, and, the, and the additional issue for Japan is you know, they live in a tough neighborhood and and they want they want uh, China in particular to know that they could have nuclear weapons if they wanted to very quickly. I see. I see. And in fact in Japan right now they have enough plutonium separated plutonium to make ten, a thousand nuclear weapons. Wow. More wow. than a thousand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a latent proliferation right. danger right. there, isn't it? Right, and so we should be grateful that they've been satisfied mm -hmm. to keep it latent. Right. Uh, but but the um, uh, but it but you know there's there's uh, it, it it could happen very quickly. South Korea has been saying we want this right too. Yes. Since Japan has it, why can't we do it? And and there's a large constituency in in South Korea for at least a latent nuclear weapons. Capability uh, with regard to North Korea, right. so so this so J fortunately Japan's example has not spread. Right. Uh, but but in in the case of South Korea, there's there's real interest. And so, what are you and other experts trying to persuade the Japanese leadership to do with their plutonium? What you know, instead of just storing it where it could quickly be turned into nuclear weapons, what what should they be doing? Well, the the they could use this plutonium. That that's, that's already mm -hmm. been separated for fuel as a way mm -hmm. to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the what we're trying to persuade them is not to separate any more plutonium. Right. And in the case of Japan, they've been building a very big. Uh, it's called a reprocessing plant to right. separate out plutonium. Right. They could separate out plutonium for a thousand weapons a year. Wow. And and with this plant that uh, they built, it's been delayed. It was originally supposed to come online in 1997. Uh -huh. It's now scheduled for 2021. Uh, they they put 20 billion dollars into it. It would be very difficult for them to admit uh, right. that, that they made a mistake, but it, it's a sunk cost. I mean, and, and right. to put a uh, hundred billion more dollars into operating it, uh, it doesn't make any sense. So that's the, that's what we're trying to explain. Yes, it seems to me Japan, of all countries, ought to be the country that says, hey, we don't want to add to the nuclear weapons danger in the world, and yet by keeping this plutonium and maybe even trying to produce, as you said, enough material for a thousand bombs a year. Yeah, you know, and also governments can change. We've seen a lot of governments change, unfortunately, a lot of them for the worse going more and more toward dictatorships and, you know, strong-arm rulers and so on. Uh, it's very distressing, some of these trends we see, and, and you know, so who knows? I mean, I, I know when I was in Japan, the 
generation that experienced the nuclear bombings was still very much alive and was very active and saying there was like an anti-nuclear allergy, an allergy to nuclear weapons almost, you know. And they said, we've got a, our mission, having had them being the only country that had them used on us, on our civilians, is, uh, is to get rid of them for everybody. But that seemed to be changing as the younger generation was coming along. Well, I, th- I think there there really is a, a very strong anti-nuclear movement in in Japan still, mm-hmm. and that that does uh, constrain uh, right. uh, even a nationalist government like like Prime Minister Abe's uh, from mm-hmm. from actually uh, contemplating turning the latent weapons capability they have into a real weapons capability. Right. Right. Yeah. What do you think the uh, chances are that uh, Japan and Korea and other countries that have been pursuing this plutonium economy, at least at some level, what are the chances that they'll change their minds? Are there pressures building within their countries uh, to try to move in this direction that you're recommending? Well, I think so. And, and you know, they, they, they basically, uh, you know, the advocates of this have been in a weakening position and they've been making additional arguments mm-hmm. and and one of their arguments has been well uh, you know we don't you know we when we set up these nuclear power plants when we cited the nuclear power plants we told the host communities that they would not be a radioactive waste site mm-hmm. uh, and that this the spent fuel would be shipped someplace else right and uh, the only place we can ship it to is a reprocessing plant right and that and the host prefecture for that reprocessing plant says they're not going to accept it unless the reprocessing plant operates. Right. And so, uh, it, but there, something happened, and it's, it's tied to the Fukushima accident. Mm-hmm. There was, an, there was a, uh, the accident, there was another potential accident that did not happen, mm. but would have been a hundred times worse. Wow. And, and it was actually an accident that we thought for a, for a week or so was was happening, uh, and it had to do with unit number four at Fukushima. Uh-huh. It was a hydrogen explosion, mm. and the hydrogen explosion in units number one and three had been from hydrogen made by the core melting down inside the reactor. Right. Uh, the the steam reacted with the metal in the in the fuel and uh, cladding the fuel and, and mm-hmm. generated the hydrogen. But there was no fuel in the reactor unit number four, mm-hmm. so people worried that maybe this meant that the that the pool had leaked its water, mm. and the and that it was the was the um, the the, the uh, fuel in the mm-hmm. in the pool that was burning. Right, uh, and that would have been a hundred times worse uh, because the reactors were inside really very thick containment buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were only leaking. Those buildings were only leaking, and and 97 or 98 percent of the radioactivity was retained. The pools were in a very flimsy, under a very flimsy roof, and the hydrogen explosion mm-hmm. just blew the roof off. I see. And so that all that all the radioactivity that would have been boi- boiled off, and uh, you know, would have gotten into the atmosphere, and and depending on which way the wind. If the wind blew toward had, had blown toward Tokyo, thirty million people instead of a hundred thousand people would have been had to had to be um, relocated. Wow. You know, it would have been uh, 
Wow. It would have been just extraordinary. So this, in fact, what's been happening because of the delays of the reprocessing plant is uh, that the, the pools in at Japan's reactors have been uh, more and more fuel in them. And and what we there's an alternative, which is which is taking taking fuel which is cooled for a while out and putting it in, it in dry casks, mm-hmm. and that's what we do. Our pools are full in this country, almost all of them. Uh, and th- there was a resistance to that before the Fukushima because it meant that the spent fuel might be there forever. But now, because of the safety issue that was mm-hmm. raised by this accident that almost I happened see. in Fukushima. Mm-hmm. The host communities are actually accepting this on-site dry gas mm-hmm. storage, and that is creating an alternative. I mean, we in in our case, we don't have any place to ship our spent fuel to because the Yucca Mountain uh, right. was was uh, didn't happen was shut down, uh, and so uh, we just accumulate the. The, the spent fuel on site in dry casks. Dry now. caskets. So, but necessity is the mother of invention in yeah. this case. So it's created an alternative, and and I think that's made it easier for the government to change its mind. Professor von Hippel, uh, we've been talking about the dangers of plutonium in particular. Uh, isn't that also a danger in terms of nuclear terrorism getting into the hands of terrorists? Yes, it is, and and uh, and this is something that uh, the Atomic Energy Commission really ignored uh, in this in the seventies, and and was was uh, actually made into a public issue uh, by uh, a, a former weapons designer, uh, Ted Taylor, and actually working. Uh, I think is 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 uh, is. Great, greatest success in getting making this into a public issue was was working with John McPhee, our uh-huh. local, local Princeton author, right, right. who wrote a book about about uh, Ted Taylor and his concerns about uh, plutonium mm-hmm. as a potential terrorist uh, material. The reason the Atomic Energy Commission uh, really ignored it, I think, uh, was was because it was so hard to make the first plutonium bomb. Right. Uh, the, uh, that was really the focus at Los Alamos for a couple right. of years. Right. Uh, you basically had to do something which nobody really thought was possible, which was uh, take a ball of plutonium and have uh, explosives around that ball mm-hmm. of plutonium and implode right. implode that ball to about twice the density, its normal density, mm-hmm. and to have that precise timing Mm-hmm. So that it wouldn't squirt out, you know, uh, of, you know, uh, because one one of the, one of the detonations uh, detonating um, right. uh, fuses was went, was a little slow, uh, was very hard and took a long time, and and so it was difficult for for the Atomic Energy Commission to to imagine that a, a, a non weapons group uh, without all these Nobel prizes, I mean a non a non governmental right. group without this these Nobel Prize winners, uh, could actually do it. But, of course, they could also potentially, uh, if the material wasn't properly secured, just get already assembled plutonium or highly enriched uranium. Well, the, the concern was more, was, was uh, the, 
the bombs are pretty pretty secure, but the, in those days mm-hmm. the plutonium was being shipped around, right, exactly. like by Federal Express, yes, and uh, and just being left places and in, in, in packages and so on. Because uh, and that was really what was driving mm-hmm. uh, Ted Taylor crazy. Uh, and he he pointed out it took him a while. I mean, he first he blew the whistle inside, right. and then when when. Uh, Attention was not paid. He actually went public with his concern. I mean, and and you know, there, there are a lot of there had been a lot of developments since the 1940s in mm-hmm. in terms of plastic right. explosives, right. Uh, high speed electronics, and he thought it had been it had gotten easy enough for a, a, a terrorist group to do it. Right. Uh, and and so uh, in fact now. The, the plutonium is much more secure, Good. Uh, and and the issue, the, the possibility of millions of bombs worth or hundreds of thousands of bombs worth of plutonium being on the roads every year because because we were we were running our reactors on them and, and right. in those days they were imagining thousands of reactors, not hundreds of reactors we have today. Uh, you know that that's that's that uh, situation is much better. There is there is a uh, another dimension to this, which doesn't involve high tech, which is uh, plutonium, it would be uh, uh, could be used in a, in a what they call a dirty bomb. Right. Right. Uh, and and you know, if you if you disperse it in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. it's a very very potent carcinogen. Right. If it if it uh, is inhaled, uh, if you inhale, if a, a, a population inhales. Um, uh, you know, a milligram or so, mm-hmm. uh, collectively, uh, about thirty cancer, ten to thirty cancers would uh, would would result. Mm-hmm. So uh, and so, you know, people would just be. I mean, I, th- this pe- people right. talk about this as a weapon of mass disruption. Right. You could just make a, a city uninhabitable. People right. people unwilling to live in it because of the it been contaminated with plutonium. Right, and so, you do that dirty bomb basically by just taking the material and exploding it with a conventional explosive. Right, you could you mm-hmm. could disperse it, or in the case of uh, plutonium metal, it'll burn. Right, and so the the smoke is, becomes see. that mm-hmm. you know the the particulates that you could inhale. Mm-hmm. That's a, certainly a very grave uh, danger, and so. Uh, you know, do you feel that over the years since nine one one that there's been progress made on sort of securing this material and making it less likely for that terrorists would get their hands on it? In in our weapons complex, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in France, they still ship plutonium, you know, in in um, hundreds of kilograms mm. a shipment by by truck. From mm. one end of France to the other, mm. from from where they separate it to where mm-hmm. they make it into fuel, mm. and uh, Greenpeace has, has has demonstrated that they can they can uh, intercept them. Wow! And and, and uh, if they, you know if they were if they were terrorists, they right. could have seized the, the plutonium. So it, it's still it's not it's not on the uh, the danger is in terms of the numbers of opportunities people have would have right. to to intercept this stuff. Is nowhere near the scale that that the Atomic Energy Commission imagined right. in terms of the numbers of shipments that would would right. be going on in right. the world. Right. But it's still there. It's still not. You know, I mean, I, 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 this is yet another reason to end right. end the um, 
the separation of plutonium. Right. We can separate. We can end it for weapons. I mean, there's been um, on the agenda uh, something called the Fissile Material Cutoff Treaty. Right. That was supposed to be the next treaty after the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Right. But that was just for separating plutonium and, and making highly enriched uranium for weapons purposes. Now, I, I want to, and my colleagues want to extend that to. Uh, producing highly enriched uranium or separating plutonium for any purpose. Right, right. That would be a gigantic step forward in terms yeah. of reducing the danger yeah. of nuclear weapons and especially of their spread uh, well, to to more countries and possibly even to terrorists, as you've been saying. And at that point, uh, you know, we we uh, would still have to deal with the highly enriched uranium and plutonium we we already have, but at least we would have capped the problem, and, and it would be a cleanup problem. Excellent. Are there other things you'd like to add uh, before we move toward closing this podcast? Well, I've focused on Japan uh, because it's a, a non-weapon state. The other countries that are doing it, I'll just, I should just mention, oh, sure. France mm -hmm. uh, uh, on a large scale, Japan, I'm sorry, Russia on a large scale, India on a relatively small scale, uh, and China is, is sort of sticking its it's toe in the water, and so we, we have an audience that we're trying to reach in China as well, and, and our book will be translated into Chinese and Japanese and, and Korean, as well as originally coming out in English. Well, it's exciting that you're collaborating at this international level, because truly this is an international global problem that threatens really all of us, whether it's through an accident, as almost happened, as you said, at Fukushima, or through the materials being used into nuclear weapons, which would obviously be the worst possible outcome. And so thank you for your outstanding leadership in trying to get a handle on this problem and in collaborating uh, internationally. When do you think your book will be published in English? Well, we're about to submit it. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I think by this summer. I hope by, by this the, summer. Excellent. Yeah. So I hope that our listeners will mark November 10th on their calendar because Professor Von Hippel is going to be a speaker at our annual conference for peace this fall here in Princeton. And we're asking him to speak exactly on this issue, and his book should be available. So you can even get an autographed copy if you come on Sunday, November 10th. I want to, in closing, also uh, thank uh, the people that helped us do this podcast. Uh, David Kelly Crow is the one who inspired me, uh, cajoled me at certain times to start doing these, and I really appreciate that. He's here with us in the studio. And uh, engineer for the program is George McCullough who is the director of Princeton Community TV, which is where we're taping this podcast. So thanks very much, and please stay tuned for more episodes of Peace Matters. This is Reverend Bob Moore and Professor Frank von Hippel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. <laughs>